Our scripture reading comes from the book of 1 John, chapter 4, verse 17, to chapter 5, verse 5. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is God's word. Amen. Well, we're in First John chapter 4, going straight through. I think we have three more sermons left, and uh, we'll be done with all of his letters, some of the shortest books in the Bible, but honestly some of the most poignant, uh, difficult to misunderstand, I should say. Um, They are very plain and direct, and that's why we often skip reading them, um, because they are very convicting. Um, John, up to this point, has been speaking a lot about love, and I think maybe you've never thought this, but I think some people hear four, five sermons about love, and they're like, Good night. Can we talk about something else? And we go, wait a second. God wrote this, so perhaps he thinks we're a little hard-headed about love. You ever think about that? It's like, why does John write so much about Why does God write so much about love? Maybe it's because we suck at it, quite frankly. And so it's been convicting for me because I have found myself approaching a sermon going, okay, i got to preach about love again. Why, God? Because you're really bad at it. Oh, that's why. So he's been hitting love, and we're going to hit love again. And this kind of brings to a close what he's been talking about. And again, he's been speaking about beginning with the love that God has for us and how that love impacts how we love. And last week, John, obviously God, defined God's very character, his very nature as Love, the standard of love. And so the definition of love isn't created by our own intellect, by our own emotion, by our own experience, by what we see in the world. It's defined and made manifest by Jesus. His death on the cross, His death for the sins of people is the definition of love. And we we drill that and we look at that of all angles to find out, okay, what actually is love? And that's what it is. Now, John, unapologetically, has boldly declared that disciples of Jesus are not just loving, kind, compassionate people. That disciples of Jesus love in a particular way way, like Jesus, 
So we can't just say, well, Christians should be loving. We have to take a step further and say, what do you mean by loving? And we get to Christ. Now, our love, the possibility of love, begins with knowing Jesus and accepting the free, gracious gift that love God's love has for us in Christ. And in Christ, we see a love that, quite frankly, is not so foolish. It's radical, it's crazy, but it's also very intentional, it's very enduring, it's gracious, it's complete and perfect. It's all those things I talked about last week. And John has said, the only way to experience this love is not to just kind of think loving thoughts. It is to believe the gospel. It is to believe the proclamation, the news of what God has done through Christ in history to bring us back into His family, to adopt us as children. The gospel, again, is is not some advice about how to live. It's not some uh, thing or things we must do to, to have God love us. It's a declaration of what God has done, and we are to believe it. Now, if someone believes... If, by grace, God opens up our blind eyes and our blind hearts to believe that Jesus died for us, that we are actually sinful people, broken people, rebellious people, and that Jesus is my Savior of my sins, that He is Lord of my life, that He is King of everything we see, we are adopted as God's children. And the signing of the papers, the guarantee that that adoption is true, is the sending of God's Spirit into our hearts dwelling there. That is the irrevocable signature of our Father. Now, I believe that as we pray, as we commune with God, whether that be through prayer, through studying His Word, through being around and gathering with the church, as we encourage one another and love one another, that the Holy Spirit helps us to live in the love of God. To actually live in it. Not just to accept it and move on. To live in the love of God every moment. And that empowers us, He empowers us, if you will, to love others in every moment of life. Not just when it's convenient. Not just when it's comfortable. Not just even when it makes sense. Now, when we grow in love with God like that, I think a change happens over us where we begin to look at the world differently and we begin to see that nothing compares to the love of God. And it's a kind of devotion, quite frankly, that is misunderstood and mocked by many people. It's a devotion that doesn't make sense. It's a a romance, if you will, with God that people go, that's freaky. But it's the kind of devotion, I believe, that is necessary if we're ever to truly love anybody at all. Now, I pray that this kind of love, this kind of devotion for myself and for others becomes less strange and less kind of abnormal and very much a normal way of living. A normal way of of loving, where we are loving radically as somewhat of the norm. But I know that's difficult. For us to imagine. Now, if you go backwards, I remember when I got married to my beautiful bride before she was my beautiful bride. 
that romance stage. Maybe you remember that. And it was a stage where, quite frankly, I did some crazy, nutso, romantic things. Stuff that you look back and you go, that was a lot of waste of money. That was a lot of, you know, fireworks for not much. You know, just, who knows? It was just crazy, though. At the time, too, people were like, I mean, the girls were like, oh, I wish I had a You know, but the guys were like, dude, that's just stupid. Why would you waste that much time? It's crazy. It's nutso. It is, it is unusual. There's a devotion there that for me, quite frankly, was very natural. It wasn't duty. It wasn't like there was a list of things like, I've got to make sure I get this stuff done or she won't love me. It was what I desired from my heart to do because I, more than anything, rejoiced in seeing her delight in that, in seeing her be joyful about love, in seeing her be excited just to be satisfied that she was loved. I actually, I think for a moment may have actually believed that it was more blessed to love than it was to receive love. Right? Now, again, I know a lot of guys right now getting like, you know, the elbows. Yeah, I remember that time too. I remember, you know, all those romantic days. And I've got my bruises as well uh, from my wife uh, saying similar things. But if we could just remember that time that where it was easy where devotion was, was uh, something we desired from our heart. Not for fear of what we would get, but just because we enjoyed doing it. That's the kind of devotion, I guess, that I, I want from God. For God, I should say. A kind of devotion that's natural, that's, that's, that's radical and crazy and foolish. And for some of us, that kind of like love affair with God seems fluffy and strange and foreign and weird um, and for many of us, we think that's, that's for the young new Christians, right? Yeah, I remember back when my faith was like that, when I loved Jesus and I sang about Jesus, but then life happened, right? And you look at those people that are excited, and you kind of go, mm-hmm, your day is coming when life's going to be hard, and your little prayer doesn't answer, you know, and they're like, you know, whatever. You become, you become cynical, right? And people like say that they're in love with Jesus, and you're like, yeah, that, that too will pass. And the truth is, I, I want to get back to that place. I think we need to get back in that place to, to find where um, love isn't a burden. Where loving God is, is something that is just driving us and we go, yeah, it's enjoyable. And I, I do believe that um, it begins with, with some discipline. Um, I do believe that the more we love ourselves, the more it becomes natural and a delight to love ourselves and I I do believe that if we discipline ourselves even when it's you know you go this is strange and weird to intentionally love God for whatever that means it will explain what it means that the more we do that the more we love God the more we actually enjoy it and the more I think we'll actually delight in loving others in the same way and I believe that's because God's love is this perfect, all-encompassing, satisfying thing. And when you begin to taste of it, it becomes something you want more. On the contrast, my love for God isn't perfect. It's very imperfect. Uh, God's love is always satisfying. My love, you can ask anybody whom I've loved, whether it be my children, my wife, my friends, it fails and has failed. But I do believe that our love for God, though it fails, can mature. 
it can grow. It can get to a place that we might describe it as, John will see here, describe it as perfect, and we'll see what that means. Because he's going to turn from focusing on God the Father and all the love, the perfect, crazy, awesome, all-encompassing, satisfying love God has given us, and he shifts it over to our love for God. What's that look like? And he says in the first verse of 17, by this is love perfected with us. He had said earlier, in us. Perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now John likes the phrase by this and I put it on the notes. Hopefully it was light enough that you could write over it, but... He uses the by this phrase like 11 times from chapter 2 to 5. And if you were to lay them out, which I did for you, you would read them together and end up having a very good answer to um, how do I know if I'm a Christian? Because he says by this, by this, by this, by this. Now, John's letters are, again, very difficult because... They're very plain, and he intended to help distinguish for this church the difference between those who say they love God and those who actually love God. And so he's writing to kind of like, okay, there is a dividing line. There are ways you can tell. Now, John here says this particular, by this, namely, and he's talking about loving one another, because he's been talking about that the whole chapter. And he says that when we love one another it somehow perfects our love. And again, we know he's not talking about the love in us because the love in us is God's love and God's love is perfect. It can't get any more perfect. God can't love you anymore. Sit on that one for a while. He loves you unconditionally, knowing all your sin that you already have done and going to do. So he's not talking about God's love, but he is talking about our love for God. And... It can, in some ways, become more perfect, more complete, because it can mature. There is love that's hidden. There's love that's passive. There's love that's young. There's love that's not seen, because it hasn't come to full maturity. Now, perfection here then means that. Maturity. Completion. So here's your little little Twitter statement you can put out, right? Twitter's interesting these days. It seems like... um, I was making the observation, Twitter seems like to be a new competition between pastors and like teachers. And the competition is who can say the most, the oldest truth, the most cleverest new ways, like in whatever many digits you get on Twitter, I don't know. So here's your Twitter, right? I thought about this on the way to, uh, way to church today, and that is this, as your faith grows up, ready, ready? It's going to show up. It's going to show up. Not just in your mind. As it matures, maturity is defined by being able to see it. Being to actually have it manifested because Jesus didn't just love us with a good sentimental thought. He loved us in such a way that you actually demonstrated it. It was actually made manifest. So, this manifestation of our love, this maturity of our love, this love becoming perfect in us, 
Because the truth is, we can love God and understand His love more and deeper, but we can also love others more and deeper. The presence of this evidence, the evidence of this love is, shows us that God's love is actually in us. If it's not there, question mark. If our love is not actually having expression, question mark. Love that never reaches our mouth, right? Love that never reaches our hands. Love that never reaches our feet. Love that never touches our wallets or our time or our energy. Love that never gets to a place where it's actually made manifest is not love. It is not love. It's like the person that has an idea and then someone does not they go, I had that idea. Who says you had that idea? Until that idea actually has expression, perhaps it doesn't exist. It's like certain assent, like when you go, I believe in certain facts about Jesus, doesn't mean you have faith in Jesus. That's not what is evidence that you have a transformed heart because you can give a dissertation on the identity of Jesus Christ. I got plenty of friends that do that and they could care less about Jesus. They know all the facts about church, all the Bible stories. John says that our completed love for God, that love that's made perfect with us, love in action towards others, whatever action that is, there are lots of ways to love, but it's an action, you're doing something. He says that is what gives us confidence for the coming day of judgment. The day when God's light will reveal everything. Now, I know many of us are going, that just sounds like works-based stuff. Are you telling me that i got to do a bunch of good works or Jesus is going to come and smite me with his fireball when he shows up on the day of judgment? No. But stay with me. This is the second time John's talked about the day of judgment. And I think it's a day, specifically Christ's return, that should be on the forefront of our minds uh, more than it is now. Jesus is returning to judge. And that day of judgment is going to be full of shame, shame, and terror for the wicked. Those who have denied Jesus, those who have rejected God's word, those who have loved the world, those who have taught lies, those who have done good things to the glory of men, those who have rebelled against God, those who have thrown off His rule, those who have attempted to build their own kingdom apart from His, they will be punished justly. They will be punished justly. There is a day of judgment. It is real. It is coming. But those who are God's children do not fear that day. Those whom Jesus loves, those whom Jesus saved, those who possess the Holy Spirit, those who are the children of God do not need to fear because God's love has changed that person. John says, as Jesus is, also are we in this world. Do we understand? Do we understand the shift in identity that has occurred because of God's love for us? If you confess faith in Jesus Christ, 
You are a different person. The old you was buried, dead, gone forever. The new you is now alive. And there's a lot to that. That you need not fear any longer because everything has changed for you. When God sees you, for those who are Christians, He sees His Son in all perfection. Do we understand that? He sees not your brokenness that you have done, not the sins that you are going to commit. He sees His Son in all perfection and He is pleased. Let me just tell you how that's changed. Okay? How God's love has moved you from being a slave to sin to a slave to righteousness. From being a condemned enemy with all kinds of weapons pointed out at God to a forgiven friend. You have gone from a rebel against God, pursuing the world, to an ambassador for God. God's love has changed you from a guilty sinner to an innocent, clothed in white, cleansed by the blood of Jesus' saint. God's love has taken you from a poor, homeless, fatherless orphan to an adopted heir. God's love has taken you from a blind man who could see nothing and believe nothing to someone who now can see and delight in the truth. God's love has taken you from one dead without hope to one alive with the promise of eternity with our Lord. Oh, that's a huge change. That's a huge change. That's a change that is transform to know that when God sees me, not because of anything I've done, not because of any goodness I could possibly imagine doing, when He sees me because of the work of Christ, He sees His Son, and I am covered inside and out, head to toe, with the blood of Jesus, the one whom God had said, I'm pleased in Him. I'm pleased in Him before He did anything. I'm the one who, by faith in Christ, is reborn. I'm the one who belongs to a new perfect Father. And this Father knows me. This Father listens to me. This Father pursues me. This Father protects me. And He promises to never fail in providing for me. Do we actually believe that? Because if we do, it will change everything. You'll be scared of nothing. Nothing. Forget being scared of His punishment. You have such conviction that God actually will provide for you. You don't fear that He won't. Fear is gone. Fear is removed. I don't fear the punishment of dad who returns. In fact, man, I can't wait for him to return. I can't wait for him to, to get here, not so he can take this world away, just so I can be with him. That's a change in devotion. That's a change in the way of looking at everything. I mean, I'm, I'm fearfully reverent, knowing and recognizing who God is and who I'm not, but I am not scared. Of God. My devotion to God and my efforts to live a moral life then are not rooted in the fear that He's going to reject me if I don't. It's in devotion to Him. It's because I love Him. It's in response 
to His love. God's love removes all fear. But here's the catch that John is trying to hit, which is very difficult. And the reason why we truly shouldn't have fear, or should. The presence or the absence of love for others. He's been hitting for this for like a chapter and a half. The presence or absence of a love for others. Which is the response to God's love. The presence or absence of a love for others affirms or denies that I've actually received God's love. That's what John is saying here. It doesn't obtain God's love. It doesn't merit that God should love me. It just says, yep, you're either a liar or you're telling the truth. I think a good question for all of us to ask is, what do you feel about God's return? Not what do you feel about returning for that guy. Dude, you better be careful. God. I mean, not, not that. You. Just you and God. How do you feel about God's return? Do you look forward to it? Do you imagine God? I mean, really, do you imagine God is going to be angry? Do you imagine that He's just going to say, man, well done. Do you imagine yourself feeling ashamed? Embarrassed? Then ask yourself why you feel that way. There's lots of wrong answers to those questions. No, I'm not going to feel embarrassed because I've been really good. Woo, wrong answer. Wrong answer. We have to be very careful. But how do we feel? John Calvin wrote that unbelief leaves a person disturbed. But the love of God tranquilizes the heart. Believers, I believe, are convicted that Believers who live in the love of God, I mean, really live in the love of God, looking at the love of God constantly, are characterized not just by love for others, but by a peace. Just by a peace and a joy. I mean, you think about it. The one thing to actually, worth fearing, as Jesus said, in this world, is God. And that fear has been removed. So, what do I have to fear? I have nothing to fear. My life should be characterized by peace if I'm truly in love with God. The worst case scenario for a believer is death, and that's a joy. Right? So who should fear the day of judgment? Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. Those who who do not obey Jesus Christ, those who do not love Jesus Christ, those who do not share the love of Jesus Christ with others. Because that proves you really don't love Jesus. Now, I know I say you a lot. That's just because you have to talk in second person when you preach a sermon, right? i got to ask myself the same darn questions. I mean, if my hope is that 
Um, my wife knows that I'm in love with her. Why? Because she can see it. I could care less if you see it, but you should be able to see it too. I don't do it so that you can see it, but there's a devotion there, a love there that should characterize our relationship, and it should characterize my relationship with God. For the believer, that love, that devotion, removes all fear and moves us to love fearlessly. He says that in 19, we love because he first loved us, and anyone who says, I love God and hates his brother is a liar. How can you say you love God who you can't see and you love your brother who's right, and you don't love your brother who's right in front of you? And he says, you're lying. John states that our ability to love is just even made possible because Jesus died for us. So it's safe to state that those who say, if you say, if I would have asked you when you walked in today, do you love God? He probably would have said yes because the pastor is asking and you're freaked out. But if you were to actually answer honestly, do you love God? And you say yes. For anyone who confesses that I love God cannot and will not hate his brother. Cannot and will not ignore his brother. Cannot and will not neglect his brother. Cannot and will not be indifferent towards his brother. Can't happen. It's also, I think, safe to say that anyone who doesn't love Jesus, doesn't know the love of Jesus, doesn't believe that Jesus actually lived the sinless life they were supposed to and died the death that they were supposed to, anyone who does not believe that cannot or will not love his brother. Cannot or will not love his brother. Now that doesn't mean that Unbelieving people will never do things that we might consider loving or kind or compassionate. But here's what it does mean, is that their love will always be misguided. It will always be motivated by something other than a love for God. I said that last week. We don't love for blessing someone else. We don't love so that we love for the glory of God, out of love for God, regardless of result. Regardless of what we get back. The motivation is a love for God. And so for those who don't have a love for God, they can't love for that reason. And loving anything, whether it's the you know, adoption of all children in the world, or if it's the clothing of all unclothed people, which is weird to say, or the feeding of all you know, people who are impoverished and hungry, If that's the primary goal, if you love that, I think actually you could love that more than you love God, and that would make it sinful. Not to do it, but to love it more than God, to be motivated by it more than you're motivated by a love for God. It's got to start with a motivation for God. And the love of God, catch this, removes all fear. And it it moves us to love without fear. Check this out. We don't love most of the time because we're scared about something we're going to lose. That something is typically our idol. Okay? So, give you some examples to make it personal. 
when we refuse to make commitments for fear of getting hurt. What are you loving for? I don't want to get hurt. Well, that's not a love for God. Is it right to make a commitment regardless? We refuse to forgive out of fear that that person may not change. That's not why we forgive. You forgive because you've been forgiven. You forgive out of a love for God, not even out of a love for the person. But that's why we refuse to forgive. We do not give our time to what? Whatever. To the single mom who needs help winterizing her house. To the people who need uh, food down in, in Everett, the homeless down there. To one another. To help fix a car. Why? For fear that we could use that time better somewhere else. That it would be wasted. We refuse to give money to whomever for fear that we won't get something in return. We fear telling the truth and refuse to tell it out of fear that someone won't like us. I, want to be, I, I just want to be your friend, so I'll just not say anything or tell you a little bit of something that I know you won't be offended by, but not the truth. Because my friendship with you is more important than my love for God, is what you really had said. doesn't mean you say it in the meanest way possible. That's not the only option. We refuse, quite frankly, to work hard for fear that it won't be recognized or rewarded. Why would I serve here? No one's even going to know I'm serving. Man, I put, this, I put this Bible study together, and no one showed up. There's like three people there. Why did you do it? For those people or for the glory of God? Out of a love for God? or we think, You start looking at all these things. We do a lot based on fear. We refuse to suffer anything out of fear that it will be meaningless. And yet we see the cross where it demonstrates that there's no fear in suffering whatsoever because it's not meaningless. We love God and He moves us to love fearlessly because we have nothing to lose. We look at the world differently. The only thing we truly had to fear was God. He says, love you, and we go, boom. I believe you promise. Because if you really love me, God, if you really love me, then I know you'll provide for me. I know you'll protect me. I know I can put myself in a situation that, man, it's going to take a lot of faith, but you love me. I don't have to be scared. Man, we're a scared people. And I, I say this as someone who has lived the majority of my life fearful. I don't say this as some like faith giant who's up there like, yeah, I love fearlessly everyone and don't worry. That's not me. I struggle with fear. The problem is when you look at that and you go, why am I so scared of that? We don't ever get to that place. We love whatever that thing represents more than we love God. And that's been a challenge for me. So John now closes in these first five verses of chapter uh, five here, summarizing everything he said about love. And so I'll hit it, and we'll see what it all says as he's made so many large statements. He said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we, keep, when we love God and obey His commandments. 
For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. We should read that one a lot. For some reason, when we talk about love, we don't like to talk about obedience, yet Jesus talked about it over and over again. In fact, we want to make love out to be anything but obedience. He's pretty clear. But we'll hit it. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Okay, first thing he says, the power to love is from God. Here's a summary of everything he said about love, right? As you walk out and go, I'm just going to be more loving. Okay, be careful. The power to love is from God. First, the Christian faith is a rebirth. It is a new life. It is a transformation. It's not just a new way of living. It's not just a reorientation of thinking. It's not just a reform of of your behavior. It is a spiritual transformation that takes place in the heart of somebody. And it takes place by the will of God and by the power of God. It is humbling because I cannot simply choose, I'm going to love God now. He says, the Bible says over and over again, a love for God comes from God. A love for God comes from God. Let me prove it. No one chooses to love God any more then one chooses to give rebirth or birth to themselves. Who chooses to birth themselves? Trick question. No one. And yet we go, oh yeah, I'll love you whenever I want, God. It's a rebirth. Something that's in the power and the hands and the will of God. In Galatians, to prove it further, Galatians 4, 6, I believe, The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in the hearts of those who believe. Right? Right is the right answer. And as the Holy Spirit is in our heart, it says, cries out, what father? Abba, father, right? What's his daddy? And we're like, yeah, I'm going to call God daddy. No. It says the Spirit himself speaks. The Spirit is the one inside of us going, daddy. It's God who gives us a love for him. Therefore, being saved and remaining saved, or make it a little lovey, falling in love or staying in love with God comes from God. And all that begins with belief in who Jesus is as Lord, as King, and as Savior. That's where it begins. So the power to love comes from God. Then he says something next, which will make us all very uncomfortable. Should. Well, it just does for me, so maybe it doesn't for you. He's declared the motivation to love. He's, he's shown where the power from love comes from. And then he says, what does this love actually look like? And he says, obedience. Obedience. Now, I know a lot of us, a lot of us in here are selectively obedient. Okay? What's that mean? You ignore all the things that you ought to do, and you relish in the things that you do. Oh, I give to the church, and though you never love anybody over here, but you write your check, right? You, um, 
Never serve anybody anywhere in the church, and yet you attend on Sunday mornings. So you're gathering. There's a lot of things. Just list out all the one another comments in the Bible. It's a very convicting exercise. All I'm saying is that we're selectively obedient and we always fail and always fall short. But one thing that is true about a love for God is that it's characterized by an endeavor to obey. John says very, very clearly, what does it look like to love Jesus? Obedience. I like that the Bible describes our relationship with Christ as a marriage. And in marriage, you may or may not know this, it's a relationship that's not only intellectual, not only emotional, not only volitional. It's all these things put together and sometimes one more than another. Sometimes emotionally, I don't feel in love. Yes, my wife heard me say that first service, okay? And she would say the same thing. There are times when our commitment is what is keeping us together and not the fluffy feelings that, man, you just turned my crank 24-7 forever, 365, okay? That's the truth. And anyone that walks around in the relationship with Jesus like, zippity-doo-dah, Jesus is Lord all the time, I don't always believe you. Because I just know relationships and I don't think it's any different with God. His love never changes, but mine certainly does. But it's still characterized by an intention and endeavoring to obey. It's more than just a ring on the finger and signing a contract. Anyone can get married. Anyone can get a marriage license. Anyone can come up to the altar and say, I love Jesus. Anyone can become a member of a church. Anyone can become baptized. The question is, what's actually happening? Much harder to tell. And the question is, is that heart being transformed to the place where obedience is a desire, where love is a desire, where love becomes this devotion to God, where, man, I just want to do crazy stuff simply because I delight. I know you love me, and this is my response, to love you back. There is a difference, but love and obedience are inseparable. And when it comes to whether or not we love God, obedience to His commands is what demonstrates our affection for Him. It doesn't win His affection for us. That's already there. It demonstrates our affection for Him. Thoughts can be hidden forever. Words can be empty. Actions can be futile if they're not actually what God has told us to do. And that's exactly what Jesus taught over and over again in John 14 and John 15. He says, you love me, obey. You love me, obey. And in this case, John's talking about a particular command, which is to love one another. His argument ends up being a little bit circular, but he simply says, not to confuse you, but you can't love God and keep his commandments without loving one another. Why? Because that's one of his commands. And you cannot love the children of God or people at all without loving God and keeping his commandments. It all goes together. Love is not possible unless it is motivated, driven, empowered by God on His terms 
and his ways. It's not love. And in verse 3 it says these commands are not burdensome. And when I tell you, when I proclaim, unapologetically, John says, love one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Take care of one another. Concern yourself with one another. Unapologetically, I proclaim that as God's word. A lot of us, that sounds burdensome. It sounds, and I, I do believe that it sounds burdensome and all obedience does, and becomes relegated to joyless duty, motivated by guilt and fear if we're not looking at God's love. It will be fearful. You will feel guilted into it. But John argues that that someone who genuinely experiences God's love, obedience becomes our desire. We may still stink at it. We may still screw up, but it becomes our desire, as Paul talks about, a struggle, but it's his desire. And his commands don't become something we go, man, this is like about as fun as root canal work. It's not like that. It's not something to be, oh, these are, these are so my life can be difficult. We view them completely differently. Not as a hindrance to the lifestyle we want to lead, but a gift from a loving father. Not some mean employee or boss employee relationship where God's trying to just make more money. It's a father who says, I'm giving you this. It's going to be difficult, but it's for your health, it's for your joy, it's for your prosperity. That's the shift in thinking. Completely different. Where even when it's difficult, you believe God's ways are the best. And finally, he says that not only is the power to love from God and the substance of love, obedience, he says the result is victory over the world. He says you'll overcome the world through our faith in God. Now, Have you ever seen someone overcome by the world? Someone who's overcome by the world is someone who finds complete satisfaction, joy, happiness, purpose, and meaning in the world. They give in to um, the temptation to be satisfied in the lust of the world, in the pride of the world, in all the things that the temporary world can offer. They are overcome by the world. But he says, faith, faith is what gives us victory over the world. It should maybe be better said, victory over love for the world. Because the love for God overwhelms it. And I've asked myself, quite frankly, who is that? And I think, as John has said, quite simply, it's those who consistently consistently choose the world over God's word. Whatever excuses you use, it doesn't really matter. You consistently choose the world over God's word. And it may not be as bad as John over here or Teen over there, but you know that when it comes to life, you consistently go with the world rather than God's word. So, to end it, John is asking all of us to ask some very hard questions. Do you love God? Do you love God? And he said, this is what it looks like to love God. And he expects that our answer is going to be evident beyond whatever words we might speak, because I know what we'd all say. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If we love God, we're going to live in that love. And the beauty of God's love, here's the beauty, and I want you to sit in this, because I know we can leave 
For me, I leave sermons like this, and I go, man, I just suck at loving. And you go, and you feel bad, and you wallow in self-pity. But the beauty of God's love is that even if, up to this very moment, you've been thinking unloving thoughts towards me, right? You are been faithless, right? You're, you're at the point where you're like, I don't love. Even up to this moment, God is still faithful. God's love doesn't change. God's love is always there. God is always loving. He already knows you're not very good at loving, and He wants to give you His love and cleanse you from your unlovingness, if you will. So you have a choice today. If you are a Christian, if you characterize yourself as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, someone who loves Jesus, I pray that you'll come face to face with your unlovingness and confess and receive the forgiveness and the cleansing that God promises to give and choose not to live in fear. Live fearlessly. Love fearlessly, unlike you've ever done before, knowing you got nothing to lose because you've already been given everything. And for those, for those who are not yet Christians, I pray that by God's grace you will see that you have everything to fear. You have everything to fear, and it makes sense to me that you're holding on to all the stuff in the world because that's all you got. but I pray and plead with you to confess your sinfulness, to come to the cross where all those fears are taken away in a moment. Gone. And you start to see this world for what it is, and your hope will rest outside of this world, and you will begin to experience the love of God where there is no fear, and there is everything there is to life. And know that He will love you no matter what you've done. No matter what you've done. We'll come to the table today as a family. And I pray that you come with us. Confessing one of two things. Confessing and receiving salvation. Or confessing that you recognize you still need saving by the grace of God.